0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM. Well, I'm delighted that we're joined from Los Angeles for the Culture Club today by one of the world's most popular singers, lead singers in a rock band. New album is just out from Def Leppard. It's called Diamond Star Halos and he's about to embark on a major stadium tour Joliet, thank you so much for joining us here on The Culture Club.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure. You're How are you?
0: A, very good. You're going to be a busy man, aren't you? Tell us about this tour you're about to embark upon.
1: Well, we've been busy men um, since we decided to do this album in 2020. Um, but we've been really busy since February because, as you know, being in the industry yourself, um, it doesn't start the day the album comes out. There's a lot of preparation for this um, and th- we started way back in February doing promo. And then, f- you know, for the last three or four weeks, we've been I- here in L.A. rehearsing the songs, getting ready for the tour. So it's been literally all go. Um, and this is how we like it, because we've we've been away from the, the touring scene now, obviously, because of the pandemic. Since not, I think the last gig we'd played up until last night was uh, in Nashville in November 2019, so it's been about two and a half years since we did a gig. Last night, we played the legendary Whiskey A Go Go on Sunset Boulevard as a, as a launch for the album. It was a special you know, radio show. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, we've been extremely busy, and we still are, and we will be for the next three years. So that's the way we like it. <clears throat> yeah,
0: but the next three years, I see you've already sold 1.3 million tickets for the initial run across well, 36 cities in the United States and Canada. It, these are all big stadium venues you do.
1: Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, it's like a kind of a, a festival that we're taking out on the road. It's us and um, a band called Motley Crue, a band called Poison and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, So you probably know best um, for that huge hit she had in 1982. I love rock and roll. Um so, yeah, it's stadiums, as you say. the ticket sales are actually better now than they were in 2020. So I think that's like probably a sign of people really want to get back out into the world and enjoy themselves again. Um, yeah, it's going to be a big tour. It's going to be. And the, the, the beautiful thing for us is the fact that in 20, if we'd have done this, this tour in 2020, we'd have been kind of playing the hits. But now we're actually actively promoting a new record. So it puts a totally different spin on it.
0: And tell us a little bit about the album, because I see you've managed to nick Alison Krause off Robert Plant as well for a couple of tracks.
1: Borrowed, I think the term would be. <laughs> Robert would be too keen if I stole it. Well, it was It was kind of him. He was like the catalyst, really, to so why it happened. Um, I've known Robert for many, many years. Uh, We never talk music. We always talk about soccer, football. Uh, So I've been in LA too long calling it soccer. Um, He supports Wolves and I support Sheffield United. And Down the years, we've had bets, monetary bets, silly bets about who's going to win a game. And... um, Sometime in 2020, Wolves and United got drawn together in the FA Cup. So there was a lot of banter going on and he was baiting me because they eventually they won. <laughs> but he asked at the end of the conversation, like, you know, so what are you up to? And I said, well, said, don't tell anybody, but we're making a new record. And he was working with Alison at the time. And he said, well, I'm going to have to tell Alison because, you know, annoyingly, you're, you're a favorite band. And so <laughs> he did tell her and, you know, one thing led to another. And, um, she kind of volunteered herself and we were asking if she was interested and we met in the middle and it was a a triumphant yes that she'd she'd do this you know so we had a couple of songs that we thought would be you know perfect for her really but we weren't sure which one so we sent them both to her and uh, she texted me back within about 30 minutes she went oh I can't choose I love them both so I said okay do you want to do them both and she willingly did and did a fantastic job we Left her alone for about a month, she lived with them and worked some things out and Then she's texted me back saying i've 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 got to uh, I've got a rough i'm going to send you of this guitar and My jaw was on the ground when I heard it because what she did to that song she turned a perfectly great song into an absolute piece of work i mean just beautiful what she did. So, yeah, we got Alison Krauss on two tracks. We've got Mike Garson playing piano, David Bowie's longtime pianist, the avant-garde jazz pianist that is Mike Garson. What could go wrong with that kind of performance on a Death Leppard record? And the answer is nothing, really. You know, he added so much amazing colour to the two songs he played on. So we really, recording the way we did, took the blinkers off because it was a very unusual way to make an album and, bringing in people like that to colour certain songs that we figured needed it, was uh, it was an easy decision to make for us.
0: I'm going to get to David Bowie in just a little while. So what we do in the Culture Club, Joe, is we always start, and this is particularly apt in your case, uh, the first music that you remember getting, or buying a single or something like that. You've picked something which I have to admit I don't think I'm aware of. Sugar Sugar by The Archies.
1: What's oh, that? come on. You have to be aware of it. <laughs> It's the most bubblegum pop song of all time. It was like, it was number one in, in America and in the UK, 1969. Um, <clears throat> it was probably the inspiration for Pour Some Sugar On Me, you know. Um, it's just, it, there was a cartoon show. It was like, it was like Scooby-Doo, but, you know, different. There was no dog in it. Uh, there were cartoon characters, The Archies, but I think it was actually sung by um, Andy Kim. I think who sang that song Rock Me Gently but anyway it's just this amazing pop song, look it up on YouTube oh, we're, going to play,
0: we're going to play a little bit of it now actually because yeah. we're going to play extracts from the various tracks so let's hear it and you can tell us more about it then
1: I just can't believe the loveliness of loving you I just can't believe it's true I just can't believe the wonder of this feeling too, I just can't believe it's true Ah, I
0: Okay, Joe, I get it now. I remember it now. I know
1: it. Yeah, uh, you know, I haven't heard that in about 25, 30 years. I was nine years old. You've got to remember, I was nine. And back in those days, you know, of course, we were all aware who the Beatles were. But that just happened to be the first song I ever bought. You know, first time I had some pocket money and it was in the charts. And there was no Beatles or Stones song that week. So I went for something completely bubblegum, which is completely allowed when you're nine years old. And but he set the tone. I've always been a fan of pop music. It's, you know, I, I'm in a rock band and I love rock music to death, but um, I'd like a good pop song as much as anybody else, you know.
0: You've nominated for us your favourite album, was Mott by Mott the Hoople. Tell us a little yeah. bit about why that album remains your favourite, because that album is 50 years old now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the reason why. I don't think anything that came out in this decade could ever be... Match anything that you is in your DNA. And then I get that. I mean, I also get that's why people, when bands like us or you two or whatever put a new album out, everybody's forever going to be comparing it to some past work that sold gazillions of copies because it's so embedded in their DNA. Um, my favorite song of all time is All the Young Dudes by Mot the Hoople, which was written for them by David Bowie. But the album that that it came off is a little skinny and thin. I was sort of really keen on that record. But when they followed up All The Young Dudes with the the singles On Boogie and and All The Way From Memphis, they came from an album that was so brilliantly produced, so brilliantly written and put together, that they really had to push hard to break away from this, oh, you know, they're only successful because David Bowie made them successful. They needed to stand on their own two legs, you know, as a band. And they did it. They really pulled it off with that album. There's some absolutely amazing songs. As I said, the two singles were undeniable, but there's some great tracks. There's an awesome song called Violence, which kind of, kind of set up. I mean, it was punk rock four years before punk rock, you know. Um, There's a beautiful song that Ian wrote called I Wish I Was Your Mother. Um, which is, you have to hear it for the lyrics, but it's a superb record from start to end and it's it's always been my favourite album.
0: Well, the extract that we've picked out is a track from All The Way From Memphis.
1: My axe is cold. They said, "She ride a train."
0: So that's all the way from Memphis, from Mot by Mott the Hoople. So tell us about your cover band, Down and Outs, that you sing
1: with. Um, OK, so Mott the Hoople split up in 1974 and um, they went their separate ways. Ian went off on a solo career with Mick Ronson, David Bowie's old guitarist from The Spiders from Mars. Uh, the band Mott the Hoople got a new singer, dropped the Hoople and became Mott, uh, they got rid of their singer and then they became another band called British Lions. And I followed these splinter bands and, and their careers because uh, I was such a fan of Mott the Hoople. There was no Mott anymore. So I followed Mott, British Lions, and Ian Hunter's careers. Um, and oh, 35 years after they split up, I got a message. I think it's 2009. I got this message from Trudy, Ian's wife. She said, Don't tell anybody, but they're getting back together for some shows in uh, November of 2009, and they want me involved. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? Introduce them or something? She says, no, they want you to open for them. I said, well, Def Leppard couldn't do it. It would be totally inappropriate. So I borrowed the Choir Boys, this great British kind of stonesy, kind of humble pie type band, minus their singer. I borrowed the band and we became the down and outs. And I thought, what would I want to hear me do if I was supporting Mop the Hoopol, I thought I'll pick songs post Mock the Hoopol. So Ian onto solo stuff, Mock stuff, British line stuff. And I picked 10 songs that I thought would work. Um, we got together. We we learned them individually. They just learned them off the tapes. I So did I. And then we got together for a two or three day rehearsal. And we did this one-off gig. It was going to be a one 45 minute performance, but it went down so well <laughs> that we had kids coming up to us when we went for a drink in the foyer afterwards. Like, pinning it against the wall going, are you going to record those songs? You know, that was, I never thought I'd ever hear them again live. And we just looked at each other and said, well, shall we, since they're fresh in our DNA? And we did, you know, we made this first, the first album was called My Regeneration, and it featured those 10 songs. Um, and it did so well on American radio specifically, two of the tracks went top five. And I was like, just gobsmacked that this little side thing I got was doing so well, you know. So we had to make a second album and then we made a third one. And then the third album, I wrote all the songs myself in the spirit of, if you like. And um, lo and behold, it won album of the year in 2019 on, on Planet Rock in the UK. So, you know, it's it's been mothballed for a while because Def Leppard are going to be very, very busy. But it's always lovely to step out of the soap opera and act in an indie movie, which is my comparison that I would make with that. You know, they're a great bunch of guys and we we have... Just a good laugh, and that's what it's all about. Really.
0: We asked for a favourite band or artist, and you gave us three, Mott the Hoople, who we've been talking about, T-Rex, and David Bowie. Let's talk a little bit about Bowie, because you also have a tribute band, The Cybernauts, that you sing, and you're something of a Bowie obsessive. I think you'd even put our own Ian Dempsey in this programme to shame But how much of a Bowie obsessive you are. Tell us about meeting him in Bono's house in Dublin.
1: Well since I saw Bowie in 72 on do Starman, I mean, I don't remember space oddity when I was nine years old, but I saw Starman and that's when I, that's when that music spoke to me, you know, I mean, sugar, sugar is all well and good, but when, when I saw T-Rex and then David Bowie, this is my music now, this is who, this is what I'm into, you know? Um, So I've been an obsessive since, since 72 and the, the great thing about and when you find an artist on their third or fourth album is that once you've got enough once you've got enough pocket money you can go back and buy as i did um because once i got ziggy stardust i went back and got uh hunky dory and then mano sold the world in space odyssey so i instantly had four bowie albums and he just went on and you couldn't wait for the next one to come out um so cut to 1989 or was it 1990 when david was doing the sound and vision kind of hits farewell tour. Um, The night before the show, Bono uh, threw a barbecue and he invited me down and he said, uh, I want to introduce you to somebody. And I'm thinking, okay, cleaning lady wants to say hi and have a picture taken or something. And he takes me into this room in his house and lo and behold, there's David Bowie sat and sat on a snooker table. And I'm like, Jesus, man, you could have given me a bit of a heads up. you know? What am I going to say? Hi, David. How's the weather? <laughs> it was a bit of a weird one, you know, but we had a great little five-minute chat. And then, of course, we, we then, you know, we mingled. We went down to the barbecue and everybody's talking. And I'd see him again. And we talked about this. We talk about that. Then he got wind of the fact that Edge wasn't there. And I, I guess Bono said, well, yeah, it's his birthday. He's going for dinner with a missus. So Bowie goes, let's go sing happy birthday to him. So me, David... And Bono and Bono's driver getting this mini. I mean, he makes sense. I'm seriously, I'm not making this up. Uh, Pre-cell phone, so there's no proof. Um, (laughs) We get in this mini and we drive to a restaurant in Dunleary, and we all jump out of the car, run up the steps. We run in. You can imagine the the patrons (laughs) in this restaurant when this happens. We go up to his table, sing happy birthday. He gets a kiss on the cheek, and we run away, (laughs) and uh, all back to the party. But of course, while we're gone. Coco Schwab, David Bowie's assistant, notices Bowie's not there anymore. She thinks he's been kidnapped. <laughs> and when we get back, she just went apoplectic. You know, she's like, what the hell? It's like, no, 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 no. He kidnapped us. We didn't kidnap him. It was his idea. So that was a lot of fun, you know. And I'm and consequently, I met him a bunch of times, always in Dublin, actually. He seemed to kind of love hanging out in Dublin when he was starting a project. He did Tin Machine at the Bag Inn, he played uh, the academy. He opened up the factory rehearsal space in '97 for the Earthling rehearsals and let 400 people in to watch. You know, and I've I've always had the pleasure of being able to meet him. And you know that old adage: never meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you." Wrong, wrong, wrong. He was fantastic. You know, you'd think what's David Bowie got in common with me? Nothing really. But he was very, he was very kind of. Uh, open to to any kind of discussion about anything and very respective of of my success and the band's success you know and after i met him in 99 um uh, after the gig in the academy i just happened to comment to him that i was really pleased that he'd played a song called um can't help thinking about me which he wrote in 1966 i said that was so cool to hear and he was like you know that song i'm like dude i know everything you've done and i said you should do more of this stuff you know like. One of my favourites is a song called Silly Boy Blue. And he kind of just stepped back and went, looked at his producer, Mark Platy, who played bass with him, and said, wow, did you hear that? Consequently, they were actually thinking of doing some more of these older songs, and they did. And the, the album finally saw the light of day last year. It's an album called "Toy." And lo and behold, Silly Boy Blue is on the album and Mark Platty, who did the liner notes, actually mentioned the fact that we discussed this in Dublin and kind of half credited me for the idea of doing it. So I just thought it was really nice that I may have just tiny little bit of influence on the man that influenced me for 50 years. It was nice to see a little kind of give and take there. It was. Uh, I am just such a fan. You know, he's like, everything that Bowie ever did, whether it be the glam Ziggy stuff, the thin white duke all the latter day stuff with like, you know, Heathen, and then right up to Blackstar. He's just such an amazing artist. Absolutely love him.
0: And just before we take a quick break, tell us about your love for T-Rex, because we have a track lined up.
1: Well, yeah. Um, First album I ever owned was Electric Warrior, um, 1971. You know, I, I my love affair started with Rider White Swan in 1970 and then Hot Love, but then when you heard Get It On, I'm like, oh, I'm in. I'm totally hooked. And then Jeepster. So that was the first time I ever owned. I was 11 years old. First gig I ever saw was T-Rex at the Sheffield City Hall on the 23rd of October 1971. I was just 12 years old. And God knows why. My parents let me go. It was a life-affirming uh, kind of evening. It, it changed my life altogether. Walking through those doors and seeing this guy on stage doing this thing that I'd only ever seen on TV. It was... You don't, I don't think you ever forget your first gig and it was just something else.
0: Let's hear a little bit of Cosmic Dancer. I dance myself out of the room I dance myself out of the room Is it strange to dance as soon? I dance myself out of the room is with us for the Culture Club tonight. That, of course, is T-Rex. But, Joe, it gives me reason to ask you a question that I'm going to put to you just after this quick break. Welcome back. Joe Elliott, lead singer with Def Leppard, is with us for the Culture Club. And the question I was going to ask you before the break is this. Given all the type of music that you've been playing for us, very much of a genre from the 1970s and terrific as it is, when you started performing... What brought you into much heavier rock music with Def Leppard?
1: Because it's a good question. When five kids get together, um, I think you're just happy to be in a band, you know, and you can make all the inroads you like saying, well, we've got to be a certain way. We just let it be what it was. And it was heavily influenced by the guitar players more than anything else. But let's not forget the fact that as much as I'm completely in love with the music of Bowie and T-Rex and any of that genre, which is where I got into it, I also branched out into harder rock bands that you've probably never heard of, like Montrose, UFO, um, just amazing music, as well as the obvious ones like Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple. There was a lot more great rock out there. Um, and also the punk stuff as well. You know, <clears throat> when when punk kicked off, that's one of the reasons I actually wanted to join a band was because it, the musicianship was let's say uh, a little less than most rock bands and it kind of made 16 year old kids think well I could do that <laughs> so when I saw the clash live and I and I heard the pistols and I saw the stranglers and I and all the, and the damned and I, I'd be thinking wow this the energy was it was insane and I just thought it was amazing but I was never going to be in a punk band, <clears throat> but I love it to death. You know, like I love glam. But I love all sorts of music. You know, I like Miles Davis. I like anything. So <clears throat> the reason Def Leppard is is a hard rock band is because I'm only a part of the, I'm just a cog in, in a machine. But we all, we've, we've drifted back to where we came from. You listen to the new album. There's a lot more T-Rex Bowie type stuff on it than been on previous Def Leppard records. Um, It's just we feel comfortable drifting back, you know, we were pushing the boundaries in a different direction with Pyromania and Hysteria. Um, I mean, we're also huge fans of Queen, we're huge fans of ACDC. And when Queen started out, they were a full on rock band before they went into like pop rock. Um, So there's, there's a huge amount of influences collectively in this band. It's just that when you ask me a question, I'll go straight to the stuff that got me when I was baptized into music. It was essentially the, the the British glam scene.
0: Obviously, you have been at thousands of gigs, not just the ones that you've performed in yourself. So we asked you to pick one, which must have been exceptionally difficult for you to pick out one. But you did. With This is an interesting one. Uh, the Hunter Ronson Band, uh, one from 1975. Why that particular one?
1: Because it was the first gig I saw after T-Rex. So when I saw T-Rex in, in 1971, I was 12. I'd never been in a building like that in my life, the Sheffield City Hall, 2,200 seater. You know, you go up the steps. It's like going into a big court, you know, it's those building with the big pillars on it and whatever. And um, I walked in through the doors, gave my ticket in, and then there's these, like, swing doors that have got those portal windows and this i could see the light coming through because they'd just gone on and i swung the doors on went in and i was just into this other world of people going completely mental and this band on stage with all these lights and smoke and i couldn't get my head around it but cut to four years later when i was 16 um and i had a paper round i had four paper rounds and i could afford to buy tickets and I just happened to pick up one of the papers, uh, the music mags of sounds maybe. And there was an advert for the Ian Hunter solo record and on tour with Mick Ronson. And I looked at the dates and lo and behold, he was playing the Sheffield city Hall that night. So I took an advance of my paper round money and went down and (laughs) bought a ticket on the door. And I went in, of course, now I'm 16. I'm more familiar with music and how gigs are. And I, I remember it. I just I, it, The building had kind of shrunk a little bit and I just felt more comfortable in there. I wasn't starstruck. Um, I went in and really just, I was watching the guy that was the singer in Mott the Hoople. So I was I was familiar with the music. Mick Ronson was Davy Bowie's guitarist on Ziggy and Aladdin Sane and, and Hunky Dory and, and Man Who Sold the World. So I've got the best of both worlds and I'm at an age where it's really soaking in And and the reason that I I picked that gig is because it it was the second gig I ever saw, but it was the first one where I could really embrace what was going on from an audience or a stage point of view. And it really cemented the fact that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
0: We have from the BBC Live and Concert series, the Hunter Ronson band, How Much More Can I Take?
1: How much more can I take? All right, then. I play some new songs for you this first one's called how much more can I take
0: Hunter Ronson Band. Listen, before we finish with music to move on to other things, we have a mutual friend who we're going to have to mention, Joe, or we'll both get killed. Mark McCauley. <laughs> who I believe we've going Mark. to, we're going to a, lo- a lot of gigs with you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Me and Mark, have uh, we've done loads of gigs. I, I, I tell you, I think a bet, the best time I've ever had with Mark at a gig was when Horselips played the Three Arena. Um, what, seven years ago, eight, ten years ago maybe now? Um, We were both a bit drunk, I think, too. But it was just so cool to see that band play in front of so many people. I saw them in 76 on the Book of Invasions tour at the Sheffield top rank twice. They came around at the beginning and at the end of the tour. And I loved them, and I always. And then when I moved to Dublin, and realised that that's where they were from, and I would, I would bump into them. They'd split by then, but you'd see them. You know, one of them was a producer at RCE and the other one was a journalist, and you'd just see them around town.
0: Well, can I tell um,
1: you, Joe Barry Devlin did this Culture Club only a month ago. Did he? Indeed. He did. Oh, bless him. You know, and you know, I know, and I got to know Johnny Fiend's brother Ray. He, in fact, he played drums on a thing called Glam Slam that me and Sav did back in, like, 1989 to raise some money for a children's charity. Um, so, you know, I've got my my finger in a little, little pies with Irish music nowadays. But, um, yeah, me and Mark were on the front row of the balcony, like, nearly falling out of it, just freaking out to all the songs that they did off Book of Invasions or when they played things like Derek Doom and stuff like that, you know. And uh, just me and Mark, we've been to loads of gigs. We saw The Psychedelic Furs. That was the thing. The last gig I went to was the Furs, or it could have been the the Double uh, Skids big country gig at the Academy. That they were both kind of. I can't remember which one came first of those two, but you know, yeah, we're always there. We, he's my go to um, gig partner with with Ronan Leppard's producer. He, you know, we're the um, the three amigos when we go out, but we just haven't had the opportunity to do it for obvious reasons. Indeed. It'll start up again soon, though.
0: Listen, we'd better ask you a few things away from music because that's what we do in the culture club. So movies, nominate a few favorite movies for me.
1: I'm a big fan of movies because when I'm on the road, I need to rest my voice between gigs as best I possibly can. And the best thing you could do for that is to do something where you shouldn't be talking. So movies is a perfect thing. Um, but I'm I'm I love comedy films. So my favourite ever movies is things like Caddyshack, um, Trading Places, which I could almost just reel off the script to you right now. Um, Those are the kind of movies that really get me. But I think my favourite film of all time is Love Actually, because uh, it's just such an emotive movie, especially at Christmas. It's got funny bits. It's got sad bits. It's got reality in it. It's got fictitious nonsense it's brilliantly written. Richard Curtis, who also contributed heavily to things like Adder, which again is one of my favourite ever TV shows, um, is such a fantastic writer. And the acting in the film is is second to none. But you know, the, I also like the odd blockbuster thing. Things like um, you know, it's, there's some of the the, the Marvel films. They're, they're great because the CGI these days is just insane. You know. Um, I also really love Once Upon, Once Upon a Time in America, which is a gangster film yeah. from about 25, 30 years ago. It's nearly four hours long, but it's one of those films that you can pull out every couple of years and put it on and you're just absolutely in awe of the, the director's work, the script, the, the photograph, cinema, cinema photography on it. Um, just an incredibly good film. You know, There's lots of great films out there. Deliverance just for the ridiculousness of it and the squeal like a pig line it's you know ned beattie poor guy you know <laughs> it's such a great film because it's it's frightening that it could actually really happen you know and i understand so,
0: when it comes to books uh, you like autobiographies and you particularly like things from the music business as well
1: yeah i'm not much of a reader um which is weird for somebody that's supposedly a lyric writer but i picked I pick and choose lines or I hear a a line that somebody says in a film and I'll make, ooh, that's a good one, I'll steal that. Books take so long to read. Uh, If I get one of the monthly rock magazines, I'm still finishing it off when the next one comes (laughs) out. So there's no way I can really get one book. But there's autobiographies that are just undeniable. Um, Ian Hunter's Diary of a Rock and Roll Star has got to be the best rock book of all time. Keith's autobiography is great. Townsend is great. Um, a gentleman called Richard Strange, who nobody will, will have heard of, who was a lead singer in a, a pro-proto-punk avant-garde band called The Doctors of Madness. His autobiography is great. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of, of the history. I like to find out how and where Keith was when he wrote The Rift to Satisfaction and stuff like that. That, to me, is way more interesting than some fiction book about... I don't know, people living on Mars or whatever. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'd watch that in a film. I'd rather not read about it.
0: Okay, you gave us a long list of TV shows, uh, particularly things that uh, make you laugh.
1: Yeah, again, you know, I like to, I like to, I'm a happy guy and I, I, we put, I put on the news and my wife says, turn it off um and she's right really because it's always depressing you know tittle's getting rescued from a tree is never the top story in the news is it <laughs> um so yeah we we tend to watch her favorite show of all time is modern family and i watch it with her and it does make me laugh i've got to say it's great but for me and the the guys in the band we actually name check and line and and quote faulty towers blackadder father ted monty python all day long when we're in the same room. We actually do. If a situation happens in the dressing room that requires a response, it's normally something that we'll pull out of one of those shows. The Mrs. Doyle situation in Father Ted, you know, the, there's a great scene where, I think it's actually the first ever episode, where Dougal is covered in sha- shaving foam. And uh, and, and uh, Father Ted says to him, he says, Dougal, you've got some shaving foam here. Uh, you're doing it's all over your face. And he goes, that's weird. I didn't even shave today. <laughs> I mean, to, for me, that's like one of the greatest lines ever written in comedy. It's just genius, you know, and I love things like that. And when, when you know, Rowan Atkinson as Blackadder is, is just berating Baldrick all the time. It's, it wouldn't be fun if it was real, but because it's, it's fictitious, it's the same with, Fawlty, with um, Basil Faulty and the way he berates Manuel. It's that bullying in, in a comedy way. It's probably completely woke now that you can't do this or even admit to liking it, but I do. Well, do you know, you know, what? It's all...
0: do you know what we're going to do? We're going to play a little bit of Basil and Manuel having a conversation about how to dress the breakfast trays.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: Manuel, there is too much butter on those trays. Okay. There is too much butter on those trays. No, 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 senor, what? not not on those trays. No, sir. Uno, dos. Tres. <laughs> no, no, dos? no. no. Okay. I'm I'm mucho burro ali. Okay, I'm mucho burro ali. Ah, mantequilla. What? Okay? burro is. Uh, is. Um, uh, <laughs> e e-o oh. <laughs> <laughs> Burro. Burro. E, oh, Manuel, e, Manuel oh. por, por favor, See, si, 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 si. I. Nothing, dear, I'm just dealing with it. Uh, you speak good uh, how you say. <laughs> English. Mantaquilla, solamente dos. Dos. Well, don't look at me, you're the one who's supposed to be able to speak it. Two pieces, two each. Arriba, arriba. Well, I don't know why you wanted to hire him, Basil. Because he's cheap and keen to learn, dear, and in this day and age... But why did you say you could speak the language? I learned classical Spanish, not the strange
1: dialect he seems to have picked up. Because <laughs> you could train a monkey.
0: <laughs> Forty Towers from the 1970s. Look, oh, man. We have reached our time limit, I think, with this Zoom call from Los Angeles. Uh, But listen, thank you so much for taking the time. As I know you're busy preparing for this major tour that you're doing to promote uh, the new Diamond Star Halos album, which is getting great reviews. Joe Elliott, thank you so much for taking the time to
1: join us. My pleasure now. I'm going off to watch some Faulty Towers. <laughs> so funny.
0: The last word with Matt Cooper. Today, FM,
1: it all happens here.